It's time to wake up and step up. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're on the land of the Wadawurrung people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that will earn that honour in the future. We are on stolen land, land that was never ceded, land that always was and always will be First Nations land. And we have so much to learn from the way they nurtured both their land and their communities for millennia before that land was stolen. And we can't hope to have climate justice until we have justice for our First Nations Australians. We have been trying to get a seat at the table for decades, okay? Yep. What we face is systematic lying from the fossil fuel industry, from the polluters, from the billionaire oil barons, and from our politicians who are paid by them. We have had decades of lie after lie after lie, and it is a tactic to confuse people like you and me, to confuse the voting public, so we don't know what to believe anymore. The only way we cut through, the only way we give you this message, which is your life and my life depends. I don't need you depends, to tell me about my life though. Depends. I'm a, I'm a doctor, that is my job, to tell you when your life is in danger. Listen to what that man said. He said, true democracy is citizen-led. True democracy yeah. is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. Right now, our democracy is led by fossil fuel polluting billionaires. That's what's leading our democracy. It needs to be led by the people. The majority of people in this country want an end to new oil and gas. This was a clip from the UK where a doctor is on mainstream TV arguing for why we need to go out and protest in the streets. This is a doctor and there's been this massive letter out, an editorial out in 200 different health magazines expressing how dire the situation is and that this is a global health emergency. 40,000 doctors around the world have signed this open letter, this editorial that went out in all these 200 magazines. This is what we're talking about. And when you listen to what's going on in the UK, it's the same story in Australia, isn't it? Our democracy has been hijacked. The Australian government needs to stop coal and gas exports, stop fossil fuel subsidies, stop chopping down our native forests. Our environment protection laws need to include climate change and the Prime Minister must release the Climate Risk Assessment Report. Until those demands are met, I'll be here every day at Parliament House and I won't eat anything. I will hunger strike here at Parliament House every day until all those demands are met. My friends and family know that I can be stubborn. I won't give in until the Australian government takes the action that all of us need for a safe future for ourselves and for our children and our children's future. This was Gregory Andrews, who's now on hunger strike, on climate hunger strike in front of parliament. More about that later. First, we need to hear a little bit about what's been going on around the world. Colin Market OAM, what do you have for us today? Oh, thank you, Mick. Well, I've got one fewer item on my list than I had because I had the 40,000 doctors signing the letter 
but I'll start instead uh, in Europe, where Storm Kieran swept through Europe, causing widespread flooding in parts of the UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, and then picked up speed to cause rivers to burst their banks in Italy. The deaths have yet to be finalised, but it's at least 14 because they were the ones in France. There's hundreds of people being evacuated in Italy. Many are missing, and so we won't know quite what's happening there yet. And damage is estimated in hundreds of millions of euros. Scientists are all agreed that man-made climate change from burning fossil fuels was behind the unusual build-up of the storm conditions in the Atlantic Ocean at this time of the year. Elsewhere in Europe, at the Vatican, Pope Francis announced that he plans to attend the COP28 climate talks, which are due to start on November the 28th in Dubai. He told Italian television that he intends to spend at least three days at the summit. Presumably, he's going to be lobbying. Now he's 86 years old, the pontiff now spends much of his time lobbying on behalf of climate change. And he's on record as saying that COP28 talks could signify a change of direction if participants could be persuaded to make binding agreements. Now you can take that as meaning that he'll be doing some of the persuading. Just have to see how many of the people there are Catholics. To the US, where President Joe Biden faces a dilemma after a new analysis has found that liquefied natural gas, that's petroleum gas, exports may be worse for the environment than burning coal. This is likely to impact on the Biden administration's climate decisions, according to Bill McKibben, who's um, a very reliable source writing in The New Yorker. Bill said that the president now faces one of his most difficult climate choices, whether his administration should continue to allow with the expansion of liquid natural gas exports, which his Inflation Reduction Act is seen as bridging between burning coal and clean energy electricity generation. The stakes, McKidden wrote, are enormous in this regard, and there's an awful lot now to spin out from that. Now to Paris, where a new IEA report forecasts that demand for climate warming fossil fuels is likely to peak before 2030, signalling an acceleration global shift to clean energy. But the transition still needs to accelerate to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the temperature that scientists say will avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The transition to clean energy is happening worldwide and it's unstoppable. It's not a question of is, it's just a matter of how soon. And the sooner the better for all of us. That's Fatih Birol, the IEA executive director, in a statement with the figures. The agency represents countries that make up more than 80% of global energy consumption. The annual IEA report estimates that it in 2030, there will be 10 times as many electric vehicles on the roads worldwide, and 50% of the cars sold in the United States will be electric. The agency says solar panels installed across the globe will generate more electricity at the end of this decade than the US power system produces now. 
And the report projects that renewable energy will supply 50% of the world's electricity needs. And that'll be up from 30%, which is right now, today's figures. Back home here in Australia, Treasurer Jim Chalmers, uh, in a speech last week to the 2030 Economic and Social Outlook Conference, acknowledged that Labor's policies would see Australia fail its climate policy promises. But he forecast a change of direction inside six months. He said that without more decisive action, the energy transition could fall short of what our country needs. And he cast doubt on Australia's pledge of an 82% renewable target by 2030, arguing it's likely to be closer to just 60%. And he unveiled the plans to provide the Productivity Commission with a first ever statement of expectation that will make the energy transition central to its agenda. So he'll be using that group of people as his um, vanguard on a new impetus. He said the statement would make clear that guiding our country towards a successful net zero transformation would be one of the key focus areas for a revamped and renewed productivity commission. And he added that the availability of public and private capital is a really important issue, but it's not the only issue. That means incentives like the type we've been seeing in the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States can be part of the answer, but they're not the whole answer. They certainly aren't, given the news that the liquid gas uh, rejection as a transition fuel in the US. You can bet that there's uh, a lot of um, uh, meetings going on in Canberra right now as we speak, because they will need to review the governments or because our government also is relying on lng as a few a transition fuel but finally to our carbon neutral sporting club forest green rovers in the uk which played scarborough athletic in the fa cup last weekend and drew 1-1 there's now going to be a replay and i'll watch it for you because uh that's what i do and that's my roundup for the week this week Listen to our Sustainable Hour for the future. Our first guest for today is Sean Deverson. Sean is the founder and principal consultant of Lighthouse Futures. So Lighthouse, the, that name sounds uh, very interesting. Uh, Sean, tell us, maybe you can tell us your story about how that came about. Uh, yeah, no, thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me, everyone. Um yeah, lighthouse, uh, a beacon of light, a guidance, navigation. Uh, it has many metaphors, I must admit. Um, I have a personal bias for loving lighthouses. <laughs> so trying to fit in metaphors as was to go. But yeah, lighthouse futures, we're about essentially transition scenarios, better futures, that the just transition piece is what we're essentially about. Uh, we do work in the world of sustainability, but things like circular economy, ESG, but ultimately, yeah, all those sort of words don't really matter. We're after about an ecological transition for everyone to become better planetary stewards. So, and primarily with um, organisations. So that's what we're primarily about: um, making sure that transition is optimal, uh, that reduces latent consequences, and yeah, education, training, guidance. That's what we're essentially about. 
Sean, what does the picture look like? Just paint a picture of the overall, the business world, for instance, because we hear so much about greenwashing and lies, as we talked about earlier. But what's your impression of what's going on, you could say, underneath the surface? Oh, look, there's certainly a lot of greenwashing going on. Um, if there's any positive about what happened out of the COVID-19 pandemic, it provided a salient example of what can happen and what can happen quickly. So there's no more excuses about this slow transition that needs to occur. Things can happen quickly if you need to. Humans can come together quickly, collaborate, integrate, and even get entangled with each other to create policies that can affect change quickly. So if any if there's any silver lining about COVID, that's it, that you, things can happen quickly. So to answer your question, Nick, is that, yeah, look, there's definitely a lot of greenwashing going on. There's a lot of change going on. And I mentioned you know, what we're about. If anything else, what the companies want to know is where to begin. So we've got to be careful not making things too complex for organisations because they do start to err on that sort of greenwash because they want to be seen to be doing something. Um, my advice to a lot of these companies is in the world of social media is that you can't afford to do that because you'll be quickly found out. Through a couple of clicks, people can find out what you're what you're truly doing, can actually dive into your data and actually can debase whatever you're doing. Actually, often a lot of people actually, actually outside your company would know more about what you're doing than probably a CEO would. So um we 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 deal in risk we deal in but using risk as opportunity and i would like to think that the greenwashing yeah it's certainly still there and probably will be for for many years and and probably even decades but it's starting to become a less effective and we've got the ACCC now really honing in on that sort of stuff as well and the ACCC needs to be really careful on the, on the other flip side is that not making it too harsh as well because i've dealt with clients who who now want to possibly restrict their ambitious goals because of the ACCC's threats about greenwashing. So um, it's a double-edged sword there. Sean, maybe just explain to people who don't even know what the ACCC okay, is. Okay, sorry, yeah, I, yeah acronym. Um, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission are really honing in on greenwashing for companies and greenwashing claims. So if you're a corporate and you're making these sorts of claims out there uh, openly, the ACCC will come down on you hard if those claims are false or misleading. Um, that's great, and I really implore that. That's a fantastic move. The other side of that, though, is that actually it's starting to maybe make some companies nervous about being a little bit more courageous and ambitious. So it's got to, you've got to play it carefully there. So um, great work by ACCC, and it's already resulted in a couple of companies being held to account and even being charged. But... Um, Going forward, I think they've just got to play a little more carefully with that because it has resulted in, in a particular client of mine to possibly restrict and come back and withhold um, uh, their, what, was, what was going to be a, quite a courageous move. It seems to me that the business world is far ahead of the politicians. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah. They are actually voluntarily stepping in and doing things, whereas in Europe, legislation, you know, we have the EU and we have the governments there putting in place that, for instance, you must report according to the ESG, environmental, social, governance, these kind of things. And the companies there are moving now because they have to. The governments are telling them to. Yep. Whereas here in Australia, it's, it's the other way around. Yeah, Australia is definitely being um, a laggard in this regard. Um, we've got a probably a more favourable government now federally is who's starting to act on that, especially in the area of um, climate change, blue economy, blue carbon projects, circular economy. They've created a ministerial advisory group on circular economy now. Uh, but 
companies have been doing circular economy for six, seven, eight years uh, without that support. So um, it's starting to change, but definitely in the, those sort of fields, um, corporations in, in Australia have been acting years ahead of the government. Um, so it, it, some good things are coming out, but it, I think it will be certainly on the um, the corporate side of things in Australia for years to come, probably will be acting uh, uh, more uh, aggressively than our uh, political counterparts. Just wondering uh, if you can take us back to when you started and say the first company maybe that you approached or maybe even what what motivated you to get involved in this area. Yes. The first and compare, say, to the company, the latest company that you've been uh, Okay. No, great question, Tony, because there's certainly been change the last five or six years. COVID provided a good little, I guess, bifurcation point in terms of action. But you know, when you talk about circular economy, which is more about waste and turning waste into a resource and reimagining waste, um, I always say waste is a failure of imagination. So when you go to companies and you, know, you talk about circular economy back in 2016, 17, when I started the company, uh, most of them would just look at you and say, what is that? You know, what does that mean? And so... Yeah, you, you get into companies' spaces and talk about it and talk about the benefit and even show them a financial benefit. Uh, and this is where more of my company's got more into these days is, is the human bias side of, side of things, the human decision-making and the human you know, belief systems as to why maybe it's, it's more than this financial why people do things or don't do things. You know, 2018, 19, I was speaking to a company and showed them the financial benefit of moving to a circular economy, but they still didn't do it. Because they didn't, didn't want to disrupt the supply chain, it was too it was too uncomfortable, right? So now you get into the situation of now where they're starting to know a bit more about it, what the benefits of it, and I think there's also this been this bit of a change in uh, some of the the leaders where they start to see where maybe leaving a legacy is actually a good thing. So a recent company has come up to me and actually reached out and wanting to know more about what, what it all means for them a circular economy or a the escape one two three emissions uh, what does it all mean for them um reducing their carbon footprint so you definitely got a lot more companies coming towards you now and, and wanting to, to do things better because they see you know they are um i guess motivated by financial principles because banks will only lend them money because if they show this sort of thing um which goes back to the greenwashing but i'm seeing more of a, of a case of now that they actually want to know more and how they can do it better because the message has finally gone through and has cut through that doing good can also mean doing well that's not mutually exclusive anymore just even in, even in the minds so um that's the space i work in and getting more into that human bias and belief system side of things as well is working with leaders and making them understand about why they may think certain ways as well um and and getting into the and under, making them understand the stakeholder impact and influence as well um that paradox of working outside your business now more than one working in so um hopefully it's answered your question tony there's definitely been a change um and it, it's it's all for the good sean lighthouses in practice guide ships to avoid going onto the rocks yes how does your lighthouse company physically operate do you contact different businesses and give them advice or are you there that they will contact you how, how would your day-to-day -day business work yeah uh great question connor it goes both ways so we do either presentations or workshops which we get clients coming into us wanting to know more um 
I think just through word of mouth, we're getting more companies coming to us and just writing letters, understanding you know what we're about and how we can help them. We, they've seen how we've helped other companies know where to begin and navigate. So it's a great sort of metaphor, Colin, in terms of the rocks and the hazards. Uh, we don't use roadmaps. We use C charts. We think roadmaps are redundant. Roadmaps can tell you where to go and telling left and right, and yet, whereas we, we work in the world of navigation. Nobody does, Sean. We all use GPS now. Do you only operate in the area of climate change or do you give business advice in other areas as well? Uh, other areas, uh, as mentioned before, circular economy, ESG, climate change. It's all about transition, Colin, mm -hmm. so transitioning well. So they, they believe that the transition that's occurring now has been akin to what happened in the Industrial Revolution in terms of social change, environmental change, technological change. So the technology that's been set up today, over the next 10 years, will shape humanity for the next 100, 150, just like oil and gas did and coal did 150 years ago. The issue is, though, is that there's people that will suffer from that, or potentially. We want to reduce that suffering because people suffered in the Industrial Revolution when that change happened to happen quickly. The transition that's happening, happening now will probably undoubtedly, if not managed well, will result in a transition that where people will suffer and be left out. So AI, renewable power, virtual reality, augmented reality, Internet of Things, We've got to be careful with that transition, upskilling, reskilling, that transition from uh, fossil fuel to clean energy has to be managed well. Often when consultants go out and talk with, with business leaders and so on, you know, they have to be careful not to say things too harsh. You know, we don't want to really talk about how bad it is. Mm. And especially then when, when you move on to the employees. You don't want to scare them. You don't want them to feel no. bad, etc. So there is, you could say, a lot of internal greenwashing going on just as well, isn't there? How do you deal with that? Are you being truthful? Are you saying it as bad as it is? Are you showing them the graphs of what the scientists are telling us? Yeah, absolutely. No, you did right. You don't, you don't want to alarm people and make them scared, uh, but you do have to show them the facts. So there's some great charts that have come out of the Stockholm Resilience Institute that tell about the great acceleration that's happened since the 1950s. And by doing that, you have to do that because you have to debunk the old system. You have, to, you have to almost destroy it, right? So you have to get them motivated. You have to tell them the truth. That's that's the facts. And this is what I talk about the belief systems as well, because you are dealing with people's belief systems, which comes from their genetics and their environmental background and things like that. So you have to bring them facts to them and try and, you know, alter that belief system in some way. But you're right. But you have to give them people hope and optimism as well. So that's vitally important in terms of the messaging. You can't get, get and bring them up. You have to but bring hope, but show them that it can be done and, and, and it should be done. So it's about showing what sort of steps that they can do uh, to get in the, on that path. But a message of, yep, alarmism in some way, but also hope and optimism as well. Um, if I can take you back to when you were talking about 150 years ago when coal took over as being the principal course, uh, it started if you like, with the Industrial Revolution mm. and steam, and you, you burned coal to create steam, and eventually that created electricity as well. But the point was, yes, it happened incredibly fast, but people made a vast amount of money mm. because yeah. it was new. Now, what we're doing now is trying to get people off of that burning coal way of thinking but we haven't got another method where they can make a lot of money fast. If you were offering that option, you would get a lot more business online. I totally agree. Um, 
And we're moving also to a point where it's a lot more decentralized as well. You're getting to where energy is, is uh, the options that are coming out quickly now, whether it be hydrogen, solar, uh, wind, uh, even ocean power. There's options coming out now. I've, I've researched this quite extensively, and it'll be interesting to see how we go with that uh, and, and navigate that um, in context because I think what will prevail uh, probably might, might be the most optimal either. Um, I, I once read that we've only got enough materials or minerals in the ground to have one generation of renewable power to renew the power globally. So all the minerals in the earth, uh, we only got really one or two, maybe two potentially generations of renewable power. So we have to get into a situation of circular economy, reusing minerals and reusing materials. So um, that's a that's a path we have to navigate quite carefully as well, because we're already we're already investing in mines and you know, they're using modern slavery to get our cobalt and our nickel for and the rare earths. So we've got to be very careful of that. So it's a bit of a paradox there. And even coal was a paradox. You know, they, they promised that coal would reduce in the, in the, in the world of the steam engine, but actually increased because they increased efficiencies, increased use. Industrialization kicked in. It's called the Jevons paradox. So we actually started putting more coal into the air or burning more coal. So we've got to make sure there's no, there's not another new Jevons paradox with renewable, renewables. So we have to be very careful of that. And so that's what we look at. That's what we research. So we try to look look through the yep, wind power and wind turbines are out there and is there another more optimal solution just maybe just out just slightly out there that we maybe need to bring in uh, earlier? Because um, once we go down the wind turbines path, it's set in for the next potentially 100 or more years. So that's what we have to be careful about. It sounds like you are fully on board with the business revolution. And we're starting a podcast very soon, a series that we call the business revolution and, uh, and making, you know, changing the, the, the way that we talk about what businesses can do. Um, I want to introduce you to someone who right now is maybe changing the story. We don't know where he's going to take it. His name is Gregory Andrews. And right now he's in front of the, the parliament in Canberra on a chair where he's sitting with his sign, just like Greta Thunberg did about five years ago in front of the Swedish parliament, he's now sitting in front of the Australian parliament. And on the sign, it just says, climate hunger strike, day five, day six, day seven he's come to now. Let's just hear a little clip from when he was speaking on day three. In the words of the United Nations Secretary-General, the world is on the brink of climate collapse and Australia bears a huge responsibility for the disasters that are unfolding across the world. We are the third largest fossil fuel exporter in the world. That's why I'm calling on the Australian government to cease all coal and gas projects and exports now. Australia's exported emissions through fossil fuels are two and a half times the size of all the emissions we create here. So we can't get our domestic emissions down and say we're doing our part because we're exporting emissions throughout the world and the climate doesn't care where those emissions are released. New projects that are proposed, like the Beetaloo gas project, have massive emissions of up to 1.2 billion tonnes. Climate scientists call that a climate bomb. 
That's why I'm here at Parliament House protesting on a hunger strike and I will continue to be here every day and I refuse to eat until the Australian government bans fossil fuel exports. Please sign my petition below to show your support. Thank you. Says Gregory Andrews, and we'll put a link to his petition in our podcast notes. What do you say, Sean, to that sort of uh, trying to, you know, twist the arm of the government like that? Is that going to work? I always always believe in symbology. Um, I think symbology is one of the most powerful leadership traits. Uh, and what Gregory is doing is is unfortunately sad that we've got to that point, but um, it will be powerful. Um, no matter the outcome, a bit like Greta Thunberg, um, all the people around the world who are, who stand alone initially, um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that he will gain a quick and voluminous following. But the thing is, and we followed Greta Thunberg very closely because we interviewed, we had uh, someone in Stockholm go and interview her on day three of her first climate strike back in 2018. And, uh, you know, we started spreading her message here in Australia. But it took four months before mm. Greta got anywhere. And I'm just worried that uh, here with Greg, in four months' time, he won't be around if he's on our understrike four months. And, and that, that could definitely happen. It, it definitely. And look, there could be some real dire, dire consequences for Gregory. Um, we've got a government, you talked about greenwashing before, they, they're, they're creating this circular economy, sort of minister of advisory group, but they're actually still approving coal projects uh, left, right and centre. So... Um, still destroying um, old growth forests in Tasmania. They, they want to do that. So, look, yeah, it's it's sad um, that's come to this. Uh, I wish him well, but you're right. Um, the, the facts or no historical facts would suggest that this is going to be a long drawn out situation, and governments don't like to be held to account by individuals like this. But if we get a following behind him quickly, we, this is what we're, our responsibility. Then, then wait, the numbers start to speak. That's the thing, isn't it? He can't do it alone. He no, needs he us, the Australian people behind him before it begins to matter yeah, what he's doing. Absolutely. Yep. So there's some leadership there. Maybe we'll see. And we'll certainly follow it closely. We'll be back on this next Wednesday and, and report on what's been going on. We do have, speaking of Greta Thunberg, a climate strike coming up on the 17th of November. And we've been fortunate to get two young guys, two teenagers to come on to talk about why, what their motivations are in organising School Strike for Climate at the moment. So we've got 16-year-old Joey Thompson and 15-year-old Miles Wilkinson. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Tony. Thanks so much for letting us on. But yeah, like you said, I'm 16 years old and I've been organising with School Strike since 2022. And I'm going to be a part of organising the strike in Melbourne on the 17th of November. Um, along with Miles, who is also here. Yeah, and so we're organizing the strike on November 17th with the theme of Shift the Power. Um, and that's focusing on the Labour government and kind of putting the pressure and turning up the heat on the Labour government to shift the power away from billionaires and fossil fuel corporations and shift the power to the people and towards circular economy and towards renewable, equitable and community renewable power. Yeah, Miles, did you want to add anything there? Uh, yeah. For sure, yeah. Um, I'll just introduce myself first. Um, I'm a climate activist um, and a teenager. I'm 15 years old. I joined School Strike for Climate 
this year, early this year, I think in March when I met Joey at a at an Extinction Rebellion climate action. Um, but yeah, so we're organizing this big strike on November 17. And yeah, hopefully this strike, um, it'll get some support behind Gregory, um, who's, who's also hunger striking, you know, because we all have to support each other in this climate movement. Um, we're all in a really dire situation. Like we're heading towards societal collapse as the United Nations has made overtly clear and as extreme weather events that have occurred heat waves floods this year has made even clearer so yeah um we're striking because we're in a climate crisis and the labor government is jeopardizing our futures and other nations that are already in peril like the pacific islands by letting big polluters carry on with business as usual so we're going to be protesting that um that our government shifts away from fossil fuels immediately and stops approving new coal and gas projects. Mm. There's a lot that the uh, mainstream media doesn't tell us, isn't there? Uh, we've talked about that. It's interesting how media is not uh, talking about Gregory Andrews, who's sitting in front of parliament, not yet anyway, but they're also not really talking about the scale of the bushfires up in Northwest Australia at mm. the moment. I mean, they are, it's an, it's an area bigger than Western Europe that's been on fire now for the last six weeks. Uh, and they're talking about 13 million hectares that have burned so far. How much is that? Well, do you remember the black summer, 2019, 20? Oh, yeah. At that time, there were 10 million hectares burned. Already now, 13 million hectares have burned. Who's talking about that in the media? And why are they, aren't they talking? You know, there's a reason that the land is burning. It's because we're burning fossil fuels. There's a reason why the ice is melting. Fossil fuels. You talk about the, the, the fires going on. Is that this stuff becomes normalised? So, the, the, if you look at the uh, the historical comparisons, yeah, you can, you can actually appreciate it. But because it gets sort of normalised year on year, then we get to a situation where we're Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and that's where I have a bit of an issue with adaptationists. Right? What are we at, at, you know adapting to? What? You know, a, a bleaker picture. Because we became numb to the to actually the slow changes in front of us. Well, actually, you know, if you start speaking those sort of terms, we're, we're in a real dire situation. Yeah. Look, Sean and Mick, we're all in agreement with this. You're you're preaching to the converted, but I want to do if I can to invite our two teenage guests to tell us the nuts and bolts of what you're actually doing. First of all, I wanted to point out when you're talking about the Labor government, you're talking about the federal government. Or, or were you talking about the state government as well? And the second thing is, uh, how many schools have you got involved and how exactly is your strike going to be working next week? Yeah, so um, we'll be, we'll actually be walking from Flagstaff Gardens to um, the state Labour office. And that's because we are, we are demanding this shift away from fossil fuels as soon as possible from the Labour government federally and also from the state Labour government um, who, yeah, that both under the leadership of both parliaments are approving new coal and gas. Do you both go to the same school? Oh, no, me and Joey, we're, I go to Northgate High School um, and Joey's um, down in Castlemaine. Right. We have another friend who's in um, our organising group who's from Castlemaine. 
Are you um, are you uh, inviting other people to join you on your walk to the? You're actually walking to the federal members' office, not Parliament. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be marching from Flagstaff Gardens to the state labor office. Um, there is no federal labor office in Melbourne, so we're going to the oh. state labor office, and the state labor office is also complicit you're, you're in new fossil fuel expansion. You're walking to Spring Street Parliament. No, we're walking to the state labor office, which is in the Docklands. Um, not right. a lot of people know about it, but yeah, it's in the Docklands, and we're going to be marching there from Flagstaff Gardens. And not a lot of people know about what the state labor government is doing in Victoria. They're like, oh, like a lot of people actually think they're quite good in terms of fossil fuels. But one example of fossil fuel expansion is that the labor government has given $50 million to a pilot program for what's called the HESC project. And the HESC project is involves brown coal being dug up in Latrobe Valley and then being liquefied into hydrogen and then sent off from the port of Hastings over to Japan. And they're actually calling it clean energy because apparently they're going to carbon capture and storage it all. But the technology for that doesn't actually exist. There isn't carbon capture and storage that has been able to sequester that much carbon. And I don't think it's going to happen. We can't justify new fossil fuel expansion with carbon capture and storage. And yet the Labour government has been financially supporting these projects and has actually supported, they voiced their support for this project. And so, yeah, they're very much complicit in new fossil fuel expansion. So, so Miles and, and Joey, you can believe that the Sustainable Hour is absolutely in support of what you're doing. But I'm going to play devil's advocate right here. We've seen these climate strikes before. There was 100,000 people out in 2019 as a follow-up to the first climate strike where 14,000 school kids showed up. So there's a history there. And yet, if you look at what happened in government, nothing changed. The politicians actually didn't listen. So what is going to make the difference this time around? Are you going to get even bigger numbers? Or how do you think that it will work if we do it this time? Yeah, that's a really great question, Mick. And I think the biggest thing with this one is we're not going to get the same numbers that we did in 2019. The political and social climate is very different to what it was in 2019. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be effective. Us as citizens are extremely powerful. Being on the streets, marching and disrupting business as usual, it has a massive difference. And I think I disagree that the 2019 strikes didn't make a difference. I think they actually made an incredible difference. They made a massive difference in changing the political climate. We got a change of government in the years following that. And we had massive, we, we like started stripping away the social license of the fossil fuel industry and building up the power of citizens and building up the power of people so that we are empowered to go out and take down the fossil fuel industry because it's not going to happen overnight. Like, and it's a shame that COVID happened because we had such good momentum. But one strike, like in 2019, that's not going to change it. We need a long-term consistent movement with lots of people. And that takes a long time to grow. You know, it's not going to happen. Like we're not going to have the November 17th strike and then they're going to end, you know, new fossil fuels. It's going to be a long fight and it's going to be a hard one. But by starting off on days like November 17th and you coming, other people coming to November 17th strike, we'll build up that movement and coming together to build that movement over time is how we're going to create change. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. 
We have had decades of lie after lie after lie, and it is a tactic to confuse people like you and me, to confuse the voting public, so we don't know what to believe anymore. We listened to how Dr. Patrick Hart spoke on the British talk TV in the beginning of this hour, but I would like to dig just one step deeper into this thing about how we've been lied to. Because for some reason, for some mysterious reason, this is not being explained to us, to the public, by the public service broadcasters that we have, who's got a duty and a responsibility to explain this kind of stuff, in particular because it's an emergency we're in. Here's how Peter Kalmus, who's a scientist, a climate scientist at NASA, explained it on the American channel Democracy Now!, The public needs to know that the fossil fuel industry and its leaders, the fossil fuel executives, have and their lobbyists have been lying for decades, for about 50 years. They came. This this is very well documented. There's a paper trail. Um, people like uh, science historians like Naomi Oreskes, Ben Franta, um, uh, journalists like Amy Westervelt. They've they've very. There's a very clear and and sizable. Uh, body of evidence that the fossil fuel industry and through organizations like the American Petroleum Institute have been literally lying to the public, trying to spread confusion about the science, um, countering climate scientists' attempt to sound the alarm, um, kind of creating this 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 sense of uncertainty through their lies, of you know spending billions of dollars on these misinformation campaigns, and then bribing politicians. So. Um, You know, I think it was a year ago, a story in the New York Times said that you know, we all know that Joe Manchin gets a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. But even Senator Chuck Schumer um, uh, received uh, almost $300,000 in one election cycle from the, co the corporation that benefits from the Mountain Valley Pipeline to ensure that the Mountain Valley Pipeline was built. So um, the tendrils of the fossil fuel industry, and it's surprising how cheap it is for them to buy off these politicians. It's Um, it reminds me of the David Bowie song, The Man Who Sold the World. Um, I know that President Biden, when he was during the primaries, a, a lot of the um, people in his campaign team came, had worked previously in the fossil fuel industry. So there's a lot of connections there as well. Um, so I think that, you know, part of the problem is simply we have one of the most powerful industries on the planet, if not the most powerful industry, uh, which has extremely deep pockets. Um, they have profits of over... Uh, I think a trillion dollars per year, um, and they can spend a tiny bit of that money to basically influence politicians. It's it's essentially legalized bribery. Um, so I, you know, I think there's also uh, the their disinformation campaign has caught is a big part of why the public doesn't understand uh, how serious of an emergency we're in right now, and that in turn um, kind of doesn't push journalists to kind of connect these dots. So I see a lot of stories being reported in the New York Times and elsewhere about these individual climate catastrophes, but they they miss very key points in the story, right? They First of all, they often use the passive voice. They say, like, the earth is heating up. No, it's being heated up by the fossil fuel industry, by their dishonesty, by their legalized bribery. Um, so they don't make that connection. They also don't make the connection of where we're going in the near future, right? So if they're talking about a deadly heat wave that happens in 2023, um, they don't say how much worse things are going to get by, say, 2028 or 2032. Um, this is what really frightens me about uh, climate 
change and caused by global heating, it's, it's a trend. You, you, you might have some years that are slightly cooler than others due to natural variability. So it's a, it's a little bit of a noisy trend, but it's rising year on year. The physics is absolutely, um, you can't negotiate it with it. It's, it's, we understand the physics quite well. We don't understand how it's all going to play out with these co complex human systems like the agriculture system, uh, water systems, geopolitics. That's a whole other question. But we know it's going to get hotter and hotter and that's going to drive all of these types of catastrophes that we're seeing to get more intense and more frequent. Good morning, Australia. It's day two of my hunger strike here at Parliament House. Sorry, it's a bit awkward about how that signs backwards, but I'm not that savvy on social media. I'm doing my best. I'm here at Parliament House hunger striking because I want more action from the Australian government. Before I tell you why, please sign my petition. The link is below. Australia's emissions keep going up and the Australian government is subsidising fossil fuels by almost $12 billion a year. That's enough to build 22 world-class hospitals for Australia every year or to employ 140,000 teachers and nurses. Fossil fuel subsidies are risking our national security, damaging the environment and harming our health. That money could be redirected not only into renewable energy, but to into things that are better for Australia, like healthcare and education, things that count. Please support me on my hunger strike and sign my petition. The work that School Strike does is very similar um, looking at the circular economy. And I think one of the main things that are a barrier to a circular economy is colonialism within Australia. When Australia was colonized, like the main objective of colonialization is to come into another land, another country, often without consent. There was no consent in Australia. This is unceded Aboriginal land that we are on right now and that is being mined. And the whole aim of it is to extract and extract and extract for profit. That is why they came here. That is why, you know, the land here is being destroyed is because people want profit. And that is disgusting. The fact that the Australian government is letting this happen, that the Labour government is allowing these massive companies and corporations like Shell to come in and destroy our natural resources and to destroy land without consent from the traditional owners is disgusting. These massive profit-seeking corporations should not be allowed to do that on this land. And we, as people, have the power to rise up and disrupt the business as usual, to disrupt the way that this system works and to demand change because we are powerful as people coming together, we will be able to do that. And so showing up on November 17th and showing up in your community is how we can come together to make a change and stop this. If I can just say, yeah, just quickly, I know we got time is you're dead right, Joey, and I'm currently doing a PhD in reimagining environmental law because it has the hallmarks of colonialism, and it's embedding indigenous principles and things like Gaia and Buddhism, integral theory into environmental law. Mm. Mm. We're going to put out a, a one-hour podcast with someone who is establishing a new religion for Earth, and actually, it's all about saying nature is sacred. And it begins right there. 
So it's an interesting uh, development and uh, stay tuned for that. It's going to come out this week in our podcast series of the climate revolution. Yeah, I think we also have a lot to learn from First Nations and Aboriginal communities and listening to them and just like listening and learning from their wisdom because they've been living on this planet in a circular economy, you could say, thousands and thousands of years, over 60,000 years. And so I think that's where we all have something to learn. And that's where school strike for climate, that's one of our major principles is, you know, using First Nations ideas and wisdom to tackle the climate crisis. And I think that's something we should all think about and take action on. We are at a unique point in human history. Due to the scientific genius of men and women, we can either on the one hand, improve the standard and quality of life of all mankind, or we can destroy the planet as we know it. The time has come to say fair's fair, to pay the rent, to pay our share. The time has come, a fact's a fact, it belongs to them. Let's give it back How can we dance when our earth is turning? We have never lost, never lost so much property How do we sleep while our beds are burning? How can we dance when our earth is turning? The Aboriginal community have had a long history of fire management. When Aboriginal people first saw wildfire, they were stunned. You've got to do the right thing by country, and you've got to support that country, and otherwise you don't have identity, and you, you, you don't have a healthy landscape, you can't survive. There's everything to be gained, nothing to be lost. And Aboriginal people had a history of achievement, let's learn from them. coming on behind you. How are they going to have a habitable world? 
we've got to do our very best to ensure that they do. How do we sleep while our beds are burning? When the power of love defeats the love of power, our world will be a better place. Because the children of today are sick and tired of all this fighting. Can't you see? It's on their face. Embrace love. Embrace life. Let's break the chains that bind these feelings. Embrace truth. Embrace justice. Let's work together in our dealings with each other. We can share this world together or we can fight until there's none. So let's go forth today, forever, and build a better world. Julia Stone's remake of Midnight Oil's Beds Are Burning, followed by Gregory Andrews' big brother, Uncle Johnny Hockle, who came down to show his support in front of the parliament. So where do people come to on November 17th? So we're going to be meeting at Flagstaff Gardens at 1 p.m. Um, and from there, there'll be there'll be some speeches and then we'll start walking half an hour later um, to the state labor office. Who have you got lined up for speakers? Yeah, we've got some really great speakers along the way. So there's some student speakers like Miles and some other student organizers. And we've also got some really, really cool guests who are coming down to speak. So some of you guys might have heard of Uncle Paul and Uncle Pabai, who, as a part of the Australian climate case, are suing the Australian government over their lack of action um, on climate and continuous approval of coal and gas. Uncle Paul and Pabai are community advocates from the Torres Strait Islands, and they're going to be in Melbourne for the trials for that case. And so they'll be speaking on November 17th. And it looks like we're also going to have some speakers from SAPNA, um, South Asian Climate Solidarity Group, which School Strike has worked with a little bit in the past and now. And so they're going to have a speaker of the day as well. Can I put in a request for you to speak to Joey? Tony, I'm actually emceeing the event, so come down and see me emcee. <laughs> Not surprised. Sean, speaking of the business world, what about striking, you know, as an employee? Um, I, I would certainly advocate for striking. I'm always uh, loving, if I was a, a business owner, employees who have got a passion and an interest. Um, and if, if it's challenging your belief systems, I think you need to look at more in, internally into yourself and um, then, you know, complaining or criticizing the actions of others and can i just probably just say with joey and miles you know inspiring work guys um and you're dead right this will not happen overnight this is a struggle and these to keep on you know, at it and keep on at it and keep on you know cracking at it, it, it you're trying to un unwind and unpack an entire system that's dedicated to destroying and destroying the planet so yeah just keep on chipping away and they're not, Sean, Sean, they're not only dedicated, they are making billions of dollars in profit, as we know. Like we just I'm heard, upset. Shell, one company, Shell, last year made $56 billion in profit. Yeah, yeah. The system is designed to do exactly what it's doing, to destroy the planet, right? And that's what, you know, people like Joey and Miles are trying to do is unwind that. 
and turn it around. And this is what I try to say to people. We're on this linear path, there's 350 other nine degrees that we can do this thing, right? That can be better for the planet. So um, now, look, I think it's lovely what they're, what they're doing. We've got to keep on doing it and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. I wanted to ask you, Sean, have you got any fossil fuel companies in your portfolio of, um, of businesses that you're helping? Uh, there has been and there probably will be. Um, my attitude is is one of uh, they want to know where to begin and change. Yeah. Uh, and but I would never back away from my principles of, you know, uh, enforcing transformation and transition, just transition. So Are you able to persuade them to change? Oh, you you got to try, don't you? You got to start yeah, somewhere. Have you have you had any success? Because oh, I, I, I've worked. I've worked with mining companies. I've worked with oil and gas companies as yet. So uh, with mining companies, I was in circle economy. Um, there is change happening there. Um, BHP, yes, they're, they're a company that is slow to change at the moment, but they're trying circle economy projects. Yeah, you, you certainly can walk away from clients such as that if they if they if they want to use you as a greenwasher. Yeah, and I, I certainly won't partake in that. And that's um, what they want to do. That's what you're up against, Joey and Miles. I'm just yeah. no, you know, it's it's a it's a you're up against vast amounts of money and a huge amount of influence over the governments that you're trying to get to by marching. I'm not trying to t turn you off of it. Keep going, but I'm just giving you an idea of the um, uh, the task that you're now taking on. This has been uh, an empowering hour, I think. Fantastic to hear what's happening both in the business world and very soon on the streets once again. We're back on the streets. And thank you for organizing that. You guys are all making that difference that we need to see. We need to see more people stepping up and daring to be in front and say, we're going to make a change. Mm -hmm. So especially uh, if you're listening to this out there and you are a parent, you could tell, you know, your teenage kids that there's a school strike coming next week. Get ready, get the signs, you know, prepared. Australia was became world famous back in 2018 because of all these very interesting and humorous signs that were created at the time. And it'll be interesting to see if that's going to happen again. Joey and Miles, you are the leaders right now, but uh, hopefully you are example will create many more leaders we need to spread the word out and we need more people to do like you because what you do basically is you show that you can be the difference that's what everyone out there needs to be we need to be the difference in the times that we live thank yep. you so much mick and i think it's important to recognize that you know me and miles we're not we're just in year 10 like we're just kids like you know we like play sports after school we don't do our homework we like hang out with friends like it's like you got to be greta thunberg or someone crazy to go out and do something, you can show up in your community by just going to a strike and organizing and we're just, you know, regular people just like you listening. And I think we can all, we can all do something here by showing up and taking action. We can all be the difference. We can be the difference. Carry on being the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone mad. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, 
then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference, be the difference, this darling, the future's watching us. So am I gonna open everything up? Am I gonna let fury fill my cup? Am I gonna be an anthem singing in the dark? Gonna light up like a burning heart? Am I gonna stand still as a rock? While everything shakes and tumbles off, am I gonna remember the truth?